So I want to welcome to the podcast, Julie Simon. She is a psychotherapist, life coach, and author of this month's book, When Food is Comfort, Nurture Yourself Mindfully, Rewire Your Brain, and End Emotional Eating. Julie has been helping people mend their relationship with food for over 30 years. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Hi there, Joshua. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome, and I'm very appreciative that you're here. This is the first book for the podcast specifically about eating. I was really excited to to read it because I've been an emotional eater for quite a long time. And uh, I think it's it fits in well with the overall theme of the Anxiety Book Club, which is trying to build resiliency, you know, understand our brains and live life without some of the vices that we normally turn to when, when things get rocky. So... I think this book is is a lot about resiliency, uh, resiliency in the face of challenging emotions, circumstances that are hard to manage, the ups and downs of life, um, and trying to manage all of that without reaching for our favorite foods. Everyone knows, or perhaps people should know, that the best thing to do when we're having difficult feelings is to feel those feelings rather than run away from them. But sometimes they feel really bad. So... Why, why should we feel our feelings instead of running away from them? That's such a great question. You know, you, you say, you know, we should feel our feelings. And I say we need to connect to ourselves, right? Which is all about paying attention to our emotions and to our bodily sensations, you know, so we can kind of differentiate between emotions and, and bodily sensations and call all of that feelings. So why should we pay attention to that? The main reason is that those are precious signals from within that are there to guide us in terms of meeting our needs. So when a baby cries out to mama, if mama is really paying attention, something we call attunement, mama's really well attuned to the baby, she begins to notice the difference between uh, my diapers wet cry and a I'm hungry cry, right? So she's beginning the process of attuning into those feeling states that the baby is communicating with her via feelings. So that's our first experience with feelings. And clearly, if we have a good experience with our caregivers, with having feelings, we're going to be more comfortable having them and processing through the ones that are uncomfortable but they're there to guide us in terms of meeting our needs. So if we don't know what we're feeling, we're going to have a more difficult time knowing what we're needing. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think in this current modern world of Instagram and Facebook and just the million different ways that we can distract ourselves, leaning into our feelings or, or giving them space and time, it's, it's even easier to not even pay attention to them. Is that right? It's, it is. It's so true. And, you know, what I'm all about and what I'm constantly teaching people is that, you know, their inner world is complex and layered and, and interesting. And there's a lot of goodies, a lot of inner treasure if you go inward. It's not just unpleasant feelings. There's a lot of other things inside, you know, that you can access, not only good feelings, but uh, deeper states of consciousness, 
quietude, you know, peace, joy, uh, just inner inner treasures that are also there to access, and they also require an ability to get quiet and to go inward. The other thing is that as we learn to attend to our feelings, our emotions, our bodily sensations, and learn to address our needs, we're much more able to move from unpleasant states of being, whether that's emotions that are unpleasant or bodily sensations like a lot of tension or agitation in your body, we're much better able to move more quickly out of those states and transition to back to peace and joy and quietude. So we need to have skills. And many of us in our early years didn't learn these kind of skills. We call them self-regulation, you know, the ability to connect to ourselves and go inward and figure out what we're feeling and needing and, you know, get back to center. Many of us didn't learn how to do that. So if we continually avoid our inner world, when we need things like soothing and comfort, we're going to end up either reaching for substances, food, alcohol, you know, drugs, or we're going to end up trying to get it off of other people. We're going to try and turn to other people and get them to comfort us. And we're at risk of damaging our relationships, you know, when we're that needy, you know, someone else to do it for us. So there's a lot of good reason to build these skills and the good news is, is that as you build these skills, that's what my books are all about, it, it gets easier and easier to connect to yourself and figure out what you're feeling and move through those feelings and get to those needs and access an inner nurturing voice and get some resolution. It gets a lot easier. Well, that's that's very great. Uh, it's hopeful and optimistic. And uh, I think from reading your book and learning about the inner nurturer, it's helped me a bit on my path. So uh, one phrase you use in the book a lot that I really identify with is being food focused. So this is thinking about food a lot, when you're going to get your next meal, how much you're going to be able to eat, those delicious cookies, or in my case, I've had, I have some ice cream right now in my freezer <laughs> that I bought last night, and I've been thinking about it. Plant-based, <laughs> um, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's cow-based. <laughs> and I know, I know for myself, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about breakfast. And as soon as I put the keys in the door um, when I'm home from work, I'm thinking about dinner. So I think I'm definitely what you would call food focused. Why Why would you say that some of us or why am I or, or the other readers of your book? Why, why do we think about food so much? Well, I think for sure food is incredibly pleasurable. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, we learn from a very early age the power that food has in terms of comforting, soothing, distracting, bliss, blissful states. And then I think some of us are more prone to overeating or overindulging or even food addiction because of the way, you know, food ultimately breaks down into chemicals and the, the way those chemicals affect our brain. Some of us are much more attracted to food, just like some people are very attracted to alcohol and some people are attracted to smoking cigarettes and some people are attracted to smoking pot and other people are very attracted to sugar and flour and things that <clears throat> dairy products, you know, things that release powerful, pleasing, pleasant, soothing chemicals in their brain. So 
those of us that are more prone to that, especially if we have states like anxiety or depression, you know, mood challenges that we're dealing with, we're going to be conditioned at a very early age to reach out for those things that will adjust our chemistry quickly. And clearly, if there was no problem with eating these foods or drinking these drinks, you know, or partaking in these substances, we'd all be doing it and you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation. The problem is, is that it leads to weight gain, it leads to health challenges, and that's, and it leads to addiction. And that's why people show up at my programs and come and see me because they feel out of control with it or they feel it's affecting their health or their weight, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that for myself. So, and you talk about this in the book. So I, I don't shoot heroin. I don't gamble compulsively. I'm not an ax murderer, uh, but I do overeat sometimes binge and use food as a comfort. And, and just like you're saying now, when I do that, I feel out of control. I don't feel like a lot of love for myself. I feel self-loathing. I feel like I'm doing something that I like a better version of myself wouldn't be doing. And there's also a lot of shame there because we want to, we want to feel like we're always acting in accordance with our values and that we're always sort of calm and cool and collected and that we're not sort of fiendishly just looking for something to make us feel better. Yeah, with comfort eating and binge eating and emotional eating, that's sort of one of the negative effects is, is having these sort of uncomfortable like feelings about yourself maybe during the act or, or after the act or even the run up to it. No, that's so, you know, it's so true that I think that's part of what leads people to seek recovery, not only, let's say, weight gain or or health challenges, but the shame, you know, just not feeling good that they are out of control in some way. I think that's a big piece is that most of us don't like feeling like we're out of control in some way. And when it comes to overeating or binge eating, you know, the recovery is all about mindfulness and slowing down and, you know, interrupting uh, those behaviors and those urges and, again, connecting to yourself. And so when we're doing the overeating or the binge eating, we're, we're actually disconnecting from ourselves. So we're, we're basically saying, I have a storm going on inside of myself of whatever. I don't know what to do with it. Or I don't know how to do something with it again this is where the missing skills were i'm missing some skills i don't know how to deal with it and so the best thing i can think of to do is to eat a carton of ice cream and that kind of quiets the storm and kind of numbs things out so it works we wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work it also is exciting it's also pleasurable But as you said before, then the downside is that afterwards or tomorrow, I feel really bad about myself. I feel some shame. I feel out of control. Maybe I even feel bingy again when I wake up and my health is suffering. I've gained back some weight. So I, this is a vicious cycle that has a certain amount of pleasure to it and a whole lot of pain to it. Right? Yeah. So I think one thing that we can do, what your book suggests, um, is this thing called popping the hood. So, so maybe let's take, for example, I went on a date last night and I had a good time and I texted the girl this morning 
but she hasn't texted me for many hours. So maybe I start catastrophizing and I think, oh, this is the worst thing ever. She's, she doesn't like me. I won't ever find love. Yada, yada, yada. I should go eat the, the cookie dough that I have in my freezer. But maybe if I intervene and do what, what you call pop the hood, maybe I'll be able to find out what truly troubles me. Or, or maybe that's an opportunity for some self-compassion where the end of that leads to me not eating the ice cream. Is, is, is that accurate? Yes, but <clears throat> what I say to people when they're first learning these skills is to give yourself permission to have the ice cream anyway, right? So start by giving yourself permission because learning any skill doesn't happen. Any skill that we try to learn, let me rephrase that. Any skill that we try to learn, we're not able to learn it overnight. So if if I were to teach you guitar, you would not be an expert overnight. You know, you'd struggle with putting your fingers on the fret. If you were learning the piano, you'd struggle with reaching your fingers. So any skill building is going to take time. So the first thing we do is give, give yourself permission to still have the ice cream. So you say, I'm going to do something that uh, will either interrupt the urge or stop the urge or, you know, just be a step in the right direction of curtailing or stopping my overeating. So before I grab the ice cream, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, this is the step called pop the hood. I'm going to identify what I'm feeling. And that means what my emotions are and what bodily sensations I'm experiencing. And this really begins, many overeaters, emotional eaters are just disconnected from their inner world. So this is the very first step of getting connected to your inner world. What emotions am I experiencing? I didn't get a response in the text. And so I noticed that I'm feeling some anxiety. I'm feeling some fear. I'm feeling some doubt. I'm feeling that maybe I'm being rejected. I'm noticing that I'm also feeling sad. I'm also noticing that a little hopelessness is coming in and maybe even like a little slight depression coming in and maybe a tad of anger at her that she hasn't responded, right? So we identify all of those emotions. And usually when I, people are first starting this step, they rattle something off really quick. Well, I'm mad and hurt, right? And I'll say, okay, let's take some time and really, and in my books, and in my 12-week program, you know, we, we have uh, handouts with all the emotions and bodily sensations you can think of. Take your time and see what shades of emotions and bodily sensations are you having. And maybe, so you also sit down and you say, well, I'm noticing my shoulders are kind of tense and my jaw is kind of clamped. Um, and just like there's a, a buzzy feeling in my body, I think that's the anxiety. I kind of feel like a buzzy scared feeling in my body. All right, so now you've done the first step of pop the hood. You've identified your emotions and your bodily sensations, and you've begun to connect to yourself. And so why is this important? Not only because it's going to uh, lead us to, um, you know, I, our needs, these, these precious signals from within are going to lead us to our needs, but also identifying our emotions and bodily sensations are the very first step in regulating our uh, physiology, right? We're beginning to regulate 
our biochemistry because when we are emotionally dysregulated, it's very hard for us to think straight or to do the things we really want to be doing when we're emotionally dysregulated. So this is the very first step in regulating, self-regulation, regulating our body chemistry. So now we're starting to relax a little bit, right? We, maybe we can even start to think straight and say, you know what, the fact that she didn't text me right away, maybe she's having a busy day at work, right? And maybe there's no reason to be afraid. So now we might even be able to think a little bit more clearly now that we've calmed ourselves down. So that's the very first step. It's a mindfulness skill. Pop the hood, which is a, an analogy to a car. You know, if your car is making a funny noise, you've got to pop the hood and be a good diagnostician and look inside and kind of figure out what's going on in there. So we pop the hood of ourselves and look inside and see what's going on in there. So that's the first step. I think that was really helpful. And uh, it sounds like you're pretty good at popping the hood. Um, I feel like you were just popping my mental hood and you definitely <laughs> put your finger on a lot of the feelings that I'm having, but maybe I hadn't put words to. Even though I've been doing uh, mindful meditation practice for a while now, I still think in those moments when you're feeling fiendish, feeling really upset, and you know that the ice cream awaits you and it offers this sort of very quick and easy solution. And I know you said it's not easy, but I guess I'm emphasizing again, or maybe I'm complaining. It's hard in that moment to sit down and even put forth the effort, I think, to pop the hood or even spend a few minutes thinking about your feelings. Is, is, there, is there some prerequisite to popping the hood that requires maybe a mindfulness practice first to maybe ease people into the practice or tradition of, of trying to get in touch with their feelings during those really nervous or, or anxious times? Or well, I like think how do they really, get started? I think really what I said before is kind of saying to yourself, I can have the food, right? I can definitely have the ice cream. So I think if you do that, you know, if you, I know that it's uncomfortable to go into the feelings. And so there has to be something probably just in general, motivating everyone to want to do this work, right? So maybe you bring that that reasoning to yourself. Like you give yourself permission. I can still have the food. So uh, I'm worried. I'm feeling all these feelings. The ice cream is looming large. I know that I can have it. I, I know I have resistance to sitting down and doing this. Maybe to bring in a reminder of why why you're going to do it. Just like if you want to exercise in the mornings, right? And you either, let's say you have a full-time job and you either got to exercise before you go to work and it's early, or you got to exercise when you come home and it's maybe starting to get dark or it's already dark and you're not in the mood and you say, okay, well, I got to do it one time or the other because lunchtime doesn't seem to work. So how are you going to motivate yourself in those mornings? You know, when the bed is warm and the sleep is good and and you got to get out of bed. Somehow you have to find a way to remind yourself of what your goal is, right? Of, you know, so you're very upset about not getting the text and you want to, you know, you don't really want to feel your feelings, but maybe trying to remind yourself that, well, you know, I want to stop this habit of, of overusing food. And so, I've got to begin to do it when it's uncomfortable because 
that's what's leading me there. So let me just remind myself that I really do want recovery, right? I really do want recovery. And we, when we talk about the inner nurturing voice, we can get into this even a little bit more in that you can have a dialogue between that, what I call the feeling self, that young part of you that doesn't want to do any of this. The young part of you says, I just want the food now, right? Like I'll give you a quick example. When I was first working on these skills, I would find that my worst eating, my worst overeating was at night, right? And so let's say I would have after dinner, let's say I would have a dish of popcorn or something and and then I wanted cookies or then I wanted ice cream and I wanted to keep going. And so one time I was about to grab more food and basically an adult voice came in, like a limit setting voice said, you know, we better not have any more. This is why we can't lose any weight. And I heard this young part of me say, I don't care. I don't care. I just want it. I don't care. I don't care. I just want it. And that voice was so loud. And I realized in that moment that that's what kept getting me in trouble was that voice that that there was a young part of me that didn't care about health, that didn't care about recovery, that just wanted whatever she wanted in that moment, right? So we call the emotional brain. And that I was going to have to bring in another part of me to help correct this situation. And so in that moment, I didn't know all this then, I just somehow intuitively did it. That young part of me said, I don't care. I don't care about any of it. I just want some cookies now. I just want some cookies now. And that other voice said, and it kind of surprised me, it was in my own head, that other voice said, well, I care. I care. And the only way that we're going to be able to get where we want to get to and lose some weight and stop doing this is if we go out of the kitchen now and we stop eating now. So let's go find something else to do. And that was a real turning point for me because I realized there was, for you know, at that point in time, two voices. You know, there was one voice that was really sabotaging everything and that I actually could access another voice that could help me. And that was a big step. So I think that's part of when you say how hard it is, what can motivate us to do the work, that voice comes in and says, I know you don't feel like, I know you don't feel like getting up and exercising this morning. I know it's dark. I know it's cold, but you, we're going to feel so great. Remember how great we feel after we do it. And I did this years ago when I worked full time, I was a, uh, CPA and accounting firm and I worked full time and that example applied to me. I didn't want to get up early in the morning and exercise. And so my inner nurture set with me a goal where we said, or, or she gave me an out. She said, whenever you, whenever we set the day and we're going to get up and we're going to go for a run, you only have to do 10 minutes. If you totally hate it after 10 minutes, you can stop. You have to get up, get out of bed, put the shoes on and at least do 10 minutes. And I was able to work with that. So these are examples of where we have to access another voice, a, a voice that's nurturing, not the voice of the inner critic, not, not a voice that's beating you up, but a voice that's nurturing, says, come on, we can do this, sets a limit, let's do it for 10 minutes, let's at least try, or let's, I know 
it's uncomfortable to sit down and do a little writing about what you're feeling, but you can have the ice cream afterwards. Let's try and build these skills. Nothing's ever going to change if we don't begin to try to do something. So let's do it. So I think you have to be accessing that voice. And while you're accessing that voice, don't forget you're building that voice. And that voice is critical to your recovery. Yep, I agree. So this inner nurturer, this very reasonable voice that's got this sort of mix of accountability and also self-compassion, but is sort of not doing things in a black and white way, it's still allowing you to have the ice cream or stop exercising as long as you put in a little bit of effort. It sounds like, at least from the, the first part of your book, that some of us maybe get that inner voice for free um, or that inner nurturer for free as a result of having really well-attuned parents who helped us get through difficult times, um, who weren't constantly trying to either solve our problems immediately or neglect them. There's a lot of emphasis on, you know, child rearing and growing up in a household where maybe there is a lot of love, but there's still, I think what you're, you call this lack of attunement. So do you think that explains for those of us who do overeat or overindulge or, or have trouble accessing this inner nurture that it's just not something that we got as, as younger people? Yes, and it's so interesting because over the 30, and actually now 31 years that I've been practicing, um, I see people, they fall into kind of one of two categories, uh, overeaters fall into one of two categories, those that did not have much access to a nurturing voice. They did not get a lot of good attunement from their parents. And so this is part of, um, you know, the struggle for them. Or those that had nurturing parents, but the parents were more of what I call an inner indulger. So let's say I, a client of mine whose mother would say, you know, we've had, this has been a hard week. Let's bake brownies. You know, like she used food and uh, lots of food for nurturing. So the parent was missing the skills of attunement and nourishingly attuning to the child's feeling states and helping the child identify feelings, address feelings cope with feelings, move through to the needs. The parent was still missing the skills, but the parent was nurturing in, a, in an indulgent way, right? But across the board, I would say 99.9% .9 of all the overeaters I work with did not get the kind of attunement that's necessary, the kind of consistent and sufficient emotional nurturance that's necessary to wire the brain in that way and build that voice internally so that we're capable of self-regulation, right? So we're capable of regulating our behaviors, uh, regulating our urges, regulating our thoughts. So the majority of us did not get that kind of consistent and sufficient attunement from our caregivers. The majority of overeaters or, or like, do you think majority, the majority of people of in overeaters. general? I would say the majority of people who, who use any kind of substance, you know, you could, anyone could read my book who's struggling with alcohol addiction or drug, drug addiction. You could substitute all the cases, you know, food for alcohol or, you know, people that struggle with regulating their behaviors. I would say the majority of them did not get sufficient and consistent emotional nurturance in their early years. And it doesn't, it's not parent bashing. I always try to remind people, it's not parent bashing. It doesn't mean that your parents were 
hostile or nasty or didn't love you. Uh, even very well-intentioned, kind, caring parents can miss the mark. Um, if they didn't get enough of it when they were young, if they missing skills, if they're distracted, if they're working too many hours, if too many kids in the house, uh, too much loss, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can lead to unintentional neglect of these early needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you anticipate the defense pretty readily and you're sort of poised to say that we're not necessarily bashing parents. Um, yeah, because parenting is a, it's the hardest job in the world. And I think the majority of parents, you know, set out to do a good job at parenting, but you can't know what you don't know. You can't teach skills you don't have, right? So you can be the most loving parent, but if you don't know how to soothe and comfort and nurture your child, or if you're not a very good listener, or if you yourself have attention deficit issues, or, you know, like I have a mother who always, ha you know, is bipolar with attention deficit issues. She was a horrific listener, you know, very poorly attuned. Not that she was trying to be, but she had her own mental health challenges and was poorly attuned, you know, so I don't think parents set out to be that way, but if they're missing those skills or they have some of their own mental health challenges that are blocking them, you're going to unfortunately be on the receiving end of, of that poor attunement. But the good news is, the, the really good news, the hope is not only that we can learn something, which is what my book is about, called internal attunement. So we can learn to attune to all those states ourselves. But the even better news that we now know in the last 20 years is that the brain is very plastic. And so even if our circuitry didn't get wired properly early in life, we can rewire it now by practicing these skills and building those parts of the brain we can rewire the brain. That's what I did to my own brain without even knowing it because I didn't know about the science until years after I rewired my own brain. The science began to support it, that we can practice attuning to ourself using that kind, soothing, regulating voice. That's the voice of the upstairs, what I call the upstairs brain, to regulate the emotional feeling self, what we call the downstairs brain. And the, those constant conversations and dialogues between those parts begin to wire those parts in just as they would get wired in if we had heard those soothing voices consistently throughout our childhood. Yeah, no, that is definitely a strong, strong note of optimism. It's too bad we don't just get this for free from our genes, but uh, it's nice that people like you are writing books and scientists are doing science to the later in life. We can still... So work on it. Well, you know, the other thing, one other comment on that is that I believe that it's kind of a global epidemic now, um, this lack of attunement, because I think when we were at a time of the world when there were villages and tribes and large extended families and communities, that it's probably always been across throughout history that there were there were people having babies and they weren't well attuned. And especially when you think about these large families, people have 10, nine and 10 kids, how's some parent gonna be that well attuned 
to nine and 10 kids. But I think the fact that we had extended families and we had communities that if a kid couldn't get it from mom, a kid went down the block and got it from the lady who sits on the porch every day or got it from grandma or there were aunts all around that gave it or or uncles, you know, I don't mean to leave men out here. I think a large part of the problem is the nuclear family, the fact that people are separated by miles or or across countries or we just don't have enough exposure now to a larger group of nurturing others, right? And you don't think we can get it from our Facebook friends or our friends <laughs> on the internet? I think it's kind of hard. I mean, I I think I'm not sure it's as nurturing to get it in a text kind of message <laughs> as it is to be able to see a face. Uh, perhaps, you know, through, you know, doing it face to face on video, you can get it. That's assuming that the people you're, you're texting with or you're FaceTiming with are, um, know how to nurture, right? I mean, you think about how much people are on phones now. I, I, I'm always thinking about this when I'm out and about that if I walk down a street, I mean, I, sometimes I have to say numerous times heads up, you know, because people aren't even looking at each other anymore. It's definitely a strange world that we live in. The combination of, you know, computers and offices and just totally being connected to these devices and disconnected to just real face-to-face -face interaction. I, I think it's a, it's a strange experiment that we're living in. Yes. Um, but I want to, I want to talk about, so on page 12 and 13, you have the emotional eating checklist. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, you make it really easy for someone to fall into this comfort eating category because you only have to check off one or more items. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I think of, of, the, of the 12 boxes here, I think I checked off eight of them. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of what I checked off. Um, I use food as a tranquilizer to dull emotions that are difficult to cope with, such as anxiety, circled anxiety, anger, sadness, frustration, hopelessness, loneliness, shame. Um, I use food to calm me when I'm experiencing an unpleasant bodily sensation. I turn to food for soothing and comfort. I use food for pleasure. I eat when I'm stressed out. I use food to silence negative, critical, self-defeating thoughts. I eat when I'm overwhelmed. I eat to reward myself. I think that one is a is a big one. And I guess we we touched on this a little bit with parenting, but it's kind of a a trope, I guess, in like our society that if like a kid gets a good grade on a test, you know, maybe they'll go out for ice cream. So does that sound like a bad idea to you? I don't know that I would say it's a bad idea, but I, I would want to see how often a parent is doing that with a child. You know, is it consistent that every time you do good, you get food because then you're kind of, you're kind of pairing that, those things together. I, I would prefer that you get lots of praise for doing good. I think the praise is really important. And then maybe parents say, you know, you've got such great grades let's um let's give you a treat what would you like you know you can maybe even pair it with the kid can you know get a new something or other a new toy or a new you know for getting those grades i think that would be a little bit better to pair it with something well earned rather than food yeah maybe healthier in the long run yeah i'm not sure why we need to pair success with with food and, and parents don't necessarily just 
pair success with food, the, the kid has a bad day and it's like, well, let me bake your favorite cupcakes because the day was so bad. So now we're getting a lot of things paired with eating. You, you got a good grade. Let's, let's celebrate with food. You had a bad day. Let's, let's commiserate with food. Too much association with food. I mean, the reality is food is something that fuels our body. And I'm not trying to say that food is not something pleasurable or food is not something that we can celebrate with. But I think we have to be careful. We still have to put food back where it's supposed to be. It is fuel that that feeds our body, right? And, you know, this even speaks to the the multitude of junk food, you know, unhealthy processed foods that are on every corner in the front of every market, you know, so we we already have a whole system geared towards grabbing some quick comfort food. So we have to kind of work against that and, and especially as parents work against this grab something, you know, processed and unhealthy for our bodies just to treat ourselves and put food move in the direction of putting food back to where it was, fuel for the body. It, of course, we want it to taste good, but good, wholesome, healthy foods do taste good unless we're so so used to processed, you know, unwhole foods, you know, then we have to move our way back to eating healthy foods because we're not used to the taste of wholesome foods. Not to get too far off on a food subject, but I think we, we want to get back to food as being fuel. And of course, there's time for food to be celebratory and, and certainly enjoyed. Um, more than just for its fuel sake, <clears throat> but let's not pair reward and food so often. Yep, I think that's that's a wise it's a wise bit of advice. So, I think what's interesting about this book and what makes it a little difficult uh, versus some other book that you would just read and get the benefits for free is that it's sort of action oriented. So I practice mindfulness. And so that makes me a little bit aware of my thoughts and feelings and emotional states. But in order to pop the hood appropriately, I think you need to be more than mindful. You have to like actually sit down and, and carve out some time to think about the emotions you're feeling, the bodily sensations that you're feeling. You kind of don't get this stuff just maybe from listening to this podcast or just from reading the book. So there's this list of core emotions on page 91, along with all of these really helpful, I think, synonyms. So the, the main core emotions are happy, afraid, hurt, guilty, angry, sad, ashamed. And then underneath each of those is, you know, dozens of little more subtle uh, forms of those, of those main emotions. I, I did the exercise when I was reading the book and um, I wrote down that I was mostly feeling afraid which is normal for me because I have anxiety. So that's one that comes up a lot. And that in, in that um, afraidness, I could even be more specific, you know, and talk about how I was feeling helpless um, and insecure and uh, power, powerless. I think, I think maybe one message from the book or from this kind of practice in general is that merely just labeling it uh, might be enough to do something. Um, it, it may be not like the ultimate intervention, but at the very least, putting labels on things that are going on gives you enough of space to maybe 
have an opportunity to make a different choice. Is, is that, does that sort of come out of your book? Yes, definitely. Um, and I think often people, you know, because it takes work to practice all these skills, I think often most of us in life want shortcuts. So yes, I mean, just the mindfulness of what you're feeling, that alone could be enough that you say, ah, okay, that's what I'm feeling, you know, and, and and very often people will say to me, you know, I identified what I was feeling. I popped the hood. I identified what I was feeling. And then <clears throat> I said, you know what? I don't need to eat that piece of cake. And I didn't eat the cake. And so I was successful. And I'll say, that's great. I'm so glad that you popped the hood and that you were able to interrupt an urge and, and do something different. I also say to them, I would prefer that you still, even some other time during that day, just sit down and run yourself through some of the skills because it's not enough really just to interrupt. I, I don't think ultimately that's going to be enough to do it. I think over time people will slip back into not interrupting and popping the hood and then they'll be right back into their old patterns. So because they're not rewiring the brain just by identifying the emotions. They are probably calming the body. They are regulating themselves a little bit. So it's certainly helpful, but I don't think it's going to be enough. I don't think it's going to be enough. I think you have to build the skills. I really do. I don't think there's any way around really building the skills. So by building the skills, that includes um, also noticing the bodily sensations and then acting differently than you would before. What's sort of the next step? Well, after the next step, you know, if you're practicing <clears throat> the skills uh, from the second book, which is what we're working on today, the next step would be self-validation. So that's that's bringing in that's the very first part of bringing in that inner nurturing voice. So you notice that you're feeling very anxious and worried and afraid because you didn't get that text message back, uh, a little sad, a little hopeless. And so you bring in that inner nurturing voice and that voice validates you and says, you know, it really makes sense, Josh, to be feeling that way. Of course, you're feeling that way. You know, you like this person, you had a nice time. And of course, you're feeling concerned and worried and, and, and that whole set of thoughts is running through your head about, you know, we're never going to, and I'll never be, you know, find someone. It makes sense that you're feeling that way. It's understandable that you're feeling that way. So that's the next step. And that's beginning to bring in an inner nurturing voice. So that's some voice inside of you that's talking. We're beginning to build that voice in the brain. So we're we're rewiring the brain. So don't forget, if we just do one step, then it's like we're starting a little bit of rewiring, but we're not taking it all the way, right? So we're not really going to get that brain rewired if we just do one little step. And we're much more apt to slip, right? It's kind of like if we want to get ourselves exercising and we can, and we, when we get out of bed and we do the 10 minutes, but rather than doing it a couple times a week, we do it only once a week. And, and then we start finding that we, we have the conversation with ourselves in bed, but we're now it slipped back and we're not, we're only getting out of bed twice a month to try the 10 minute exercising. So we're not, it's not enough 
really to build something, right? So that's why I'm saying you, you do want to practice those skills. And then the next skill in the book, which is really critical, um, is forming this alliance between that inner nurturing voice. So again, everything in my book is strategically designed to build these parts of yourself and rewire the brain. So now we're going to really build that our, our muscle, our, our, that voice of the inner nurture and build our practice of it. And we're going to use that voice, um, to, three steps here, to first remind that young part of us that, that the inner nurture is on the scene. So you, you Josh, are going to bring in your inner nurture. First, he's going to validate and say, of course, you're feeling that way. It makes sense. Now he's going to say, you know, bud, I want you to know I'm here with you. I'm right next to you. I'm always with you. And if she weren't to text us back ever, you're never going to be alone because I'll always be here with you. Now that inner nurturing voice is going to offer, you know, love and support. I love you. I care about you. I'm always, I've always got your back. I'll always be here to support you and help you and, and be right there with you finding love. And then that inner nurture is going to offer comfort and soothing. And again, these steps are strategic because most emotional eaters are not very good at loving themselves. They're not very good at, um, at uh, offering comfort and soothing. And so in that, in that step in the book, I asked you, what do you find comforting and soothing? Often emotional eaters tell me, I don't even know what is comforting. I, I don't know what I would even say to myself that would be comforting. So you're learning about yourself while you're doing these steps. What can you say that feels validating? What can you say that feels like love? What can you say that feels like comfort and support? As you're doing this, you're really starting to build a voice. And for some people, it's going to take, you know, months, if not years of, of practicing skills to build something inside. Now, I know people want much quicker fixes, um, you know, in their lives. But you have to ask yourself sometimes, how many years have, been, have you been using food? You know, how long has this been going on? And to expect that it's all going to get resolved in, in a couple of months isn't realistic. You know, I always say to people, just it's just time to start. Start building the skills because you're going to have them for the rest of your life. Yeah, so I'm, I'm realizing we're at the top of the hour and we've only gotten through skills one, two, and three. And in fact, in the book, there's seven of them. So there's definitely a lot, a lot to talk about. And, and I'm, I'm very reassured. I'm glad that you're not offering a quick fix because, you know, as we know, most things that are too good to be true aren't, aren't really true. Have you, have you seen these seven skills uh, work, work well with, with a lot of the people that you've, you've treated over the years? Yes, definitely. And my first book, which is called The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual, um, gives you a, a, a lighter dive into the skill building. And, and that book actually also it covers um, body balancing principles like, you know, nutrition and um, food allergies and also what I call soul care practices like um, quieting the mind and learning how to let go, uh, you know, of things that are really bothering you. So in my 12-week program and when I work with people, we, we usually do the skills in the first book because they're like in the first book, I have a, a, a the very first skill is establish the habit of self-connection. And it 
it covers kind of what I cover in the second book in a little small three-step process called an inner conversation. What am I feeling? What do I need? And bring in that inner nurturer voice. The second book, which we covered today, When Food is Comfort, goes into this deeper dive about the brain and early childhood and and building that voice. So listeners can actually start with the first book and and get a lighter approach to working on this and then read the second book and go even deeper into building these skills. If that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that would make a lot of sense. When people ask me, Um, you know, which book should I read? I say, you know, probably best to read the first book first and then do the deeper dive into the second book. But you can, you can do it either way. Um, Some people go straight to the second book and, you know, the second book is really more solid, intense uh, skill building. Gotcha. So I'll, I'll just ask you one more question because I don't want to take up too much of your time. But um, I guess at some point in the past, you were an emotional eater. And as you said, you rewired your brain and then you developed these sort of skills. So where are you on your, your journey with food? 100% recovered. 100%. I mean, that's what's so exciting for me about teaching this and why I'm so passionate about it is that I've been recovered for a very long time. And when I was when I was overeating and I was binge eating, um, I never really knew if recovery was possible. And I didn't have very many role models, even authors, you know, books that I read, most of them were not fully recovered. And so I didn't even know if that was possible, but I always believed that it was possible because I thought, you know, it just didn't make sense to me that we were, um, that as humans, we were meant to be overeating, you know, or, or binge eating. So I knew that something was off somewhere and that it wasn't natural what I was doing and what I was experiencing with food. And so I always hoped that there would be recovery. And there were even programs, you know, like OA that said you're never fully recovered. And I never bought into that. It just didn't didn't work in my thinking that one couldn't be fully recovered. Um, and so throughout the years, as I kept piecing together, you know, I was finding out all the pieces of the overeating puzzle, the emotional skills that I was missing, um, some of the cognitive work I needed to do on on reframing my thoughts, um, you know, some of the body balancing things. I had food allergies and food addiction, and that was part of my attraction to food. I also had hormonal imbalances that kept me turning to food. So all of that had to be addressed. That's what the first book is about. It addresses it from a mind, body, and spirit approach. Um, I had to address spiritual issues, you know, switching careers, finding more purpose and passion and meaning and joy in my life and inspiration, um, quieting my mind, you know, finding what I call God or however you want to define that. All of this was part of the journey and the recovery recovery for me. And as I healed my relationship with myself, what I what I say to everyone who works with me is that the food part effortlessly dropped away. I never had to go on another diet. It just effortlessly dropped away. I was taking care of myself. I was meeting my needs. I was no longer drawn to food. So for example, when I when I began to journal and I began to do the, the skills that I teach, 
I would find when I was listening to you and you said, you know, I want to come home and I want to have the ice cream or when I get home, you know, I'm thinking of food. I got to a point where it reversed, where when I was really stressed out, when the storm inside of me was really large, the last thing I wanted to do was eat. Eating felt like a frenzy in a way to me. And I knew the other side of it was the shame and the guilt and all that. I wanted to get home and I wanted to get at my journal. I wanted to get a piece of paper out. Now, it was, I always did it in longhand, not on a computer. I wanted to get a piece of paper out and I wanted to get all of it out. I wanted to get all my feelings out. I wanted to figure out what, what everything that I was feeling. I wanted to figure out what was I needing in this situation. You know, what was it that I really needed? And I wanted to be able to offer myself some comfort and soothing and hope right? And these were years where I was experiencing depression and overeating. And so that desire to just get to my journal and get all of it out and see if I could come to another side was so strong because the binging never took me to another side. The binging took me to a distraction and, and a pleasuring myself. And the next days after the binge were not good for me. You know, I would beat myself up ruthlessly and I felt terrible about myself. And of course, about my body. So I was really felt desperate to find another th thing that I could do when I was in those dark places. And I found it. And so the eating part just kind of effortlessly dropped away. And I never had a problem again. I mean, all of us do a little emotional eating. You know, if I want to have a little cookie at night or something, you know, that we can call that emotional eating. But really, the question is, whether you feel out of control with any of that. And I don't feel out of control with food in any way, shape or form. Um, so I'm here to say there's 100% recovery on this uh, front available to everyone. Well, that's really inspiring, Julie, and really awesome. I'm glad that you've taken the time to heal yourself and to, to make a career out of it and write about it for the rest of us. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and uh, yeah, I encourage uh, listeners to read this book, but maybe even the Emotional Eaters Prepare Manual first. Um, it's more of a shallow dive before going into this one. And they can go to my website and download two free chapters from both of the books and kind of get a feel for which book you maybe want to start with. And also lots of blog articles and stuff on the website, so lots of resources. Awesome. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. I think that's overeatingrecovery.com. Is yes. that accurate? Yes. Cool. Wonderful. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.